0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and to more deeply connecting with our own humanity. This is episode 132, and it's an interview with Tony Riches about Catherine Willoughby, the subject of his new book. But before we get into that, I just want to remind you that even if you can't come to TudorCon in person, there are digital streaming watch party tickets available. So all of the talks will be filmed and you'll be able to download them and watch them later with the transcripts. Um, we'll be live streaming the whole weekend. And so you'll be able to be a part of the fun and excitement, even if you aren't there in person. So go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2019 to learn more about that. And we will see you online, even if we can't see you in person. So with that all out of the way, let me introduce you to Tony Riches. Tony Riches was born in Pembrokeshire in West Wales, UK, and he spent part of his childhood in Kenya. He got a BA degree in psychology and an MBA from Cardiff University. He wrote several successful nonfiction books, and then he decided that his real interest was in the history of the 15th and 16th century, and now his focus is on writing historical fiction about the lives of the key figures of medieval history. His Tudor trilogy, which starts with the book Owen and traces Owen, Jasper, and then Henry Tudor, uh, it's become an international bestseller, and he is in regular demand as a guest speaker about the lives of the early Tudors. He was a finalist in the 2017 Amazon Storyteller Awards and is listed 130th in the 2018 Top 200 list of the most influential authors. He's now returned to Pembrokeshire, an area full of inspiration for his writing where he lives with his wife. In his spare time, he enjoys sailing and sea kayaking. Anyway, we shall talk about Catherine Willoughby now. Yes. I wanted to you questions in two sorts of uh veins one of which is just her life and you know who she was and then your interpretation of her yes. and yeah what it's like writing her so um you know, to, she kind of fulfills like you talked before about how she was kind of this link in the next part of the story can you talk to me a little bit about how she is the carry-on from charles brandon and, and the story that you've been telling really since owen
1: Yes, well, that's exactly right, is that I originally started researching Henry because I was born in Pembroke, the same as Henry Tudor. And then I went back a couple of generations to look at Owen Tudor, who at the time uh, had he didn't have a bad press. He didn't have any press at all, really. So um, that that was where I started from. And then each book seamlessly slightly overlapped and continued somebody else's story. So in Owen, Henry was born. And then in Jasper, the second book, he came of age. He became king in the third book. And it was easy to decide where to go next because his daughter, Henry's daughter, Mary Tudor, nursed him through his um, dreadful time with the Quincy when he could hardly swallow or let alone speak. And I was intrigued by Mary's story because, of course, her brother Henry uh, promptly sent her off at 18 to marry the King of France. And that's that led to studying Brandon's life, of course. And I realised then that um, I had the Tudor trilogy, but it'd be perfectly good to have the Brandon trilogy because it would be Mary with Charles Brandon. And then after Mary's days, of course, he marries his young ward, 14-year-old ward Catherine Willoughby. And... The more I started looking into Catherine's story, I was absolutely fascinated because it's a proper roller coaster ride, whether you're talking about just relationships or um, a Tudor woman in the time of the Tudor court or the religious um, seesaw that was going on where you could get burnt at the stake for being on either side of various times. I shouldn't laugh. It wasn't funny to be burnt at the stake, but... But
0: even even Henry himself, and one day he'd burn Anne Askew, and then on the other day he's burning burning the monks. It's like...
1: (laughs) But you see, Catherine actually knew Anne Askew because Anne was a Lincolnshire woman who got thrown out by her Catholic husband for wanting a simpler form of religion. And... um, Catherine Willoughby was very much tuned into that and so helped her. But then when Anne was being tortured on the rack in the Tower of London, um, Catherine must have been really quite concerned that at some point she'd be named. And of course, they didn't used to, used to ask very leading questions, you know. So, um, you know, is Catherine Willoughby a witch and a heretic? And if Anne Askew just said the word yes, um, then Catherine could have been burnt at the stake. But the amazing thing is that, I mean, you have to respect Anne, Anne Askew, she went to her death without naming Catherine Willoughby. And yeah, um, yeah. that really must have hardened Catherine's views about reform and the need for reform and the injustice of it all. You know, it's it's really quite difficult to, to understand just, it was a matter of life and death, what religion you believed in. And I know there are countries in the world that are still a bit like that today, but um, it, it is completely shocking. And so the the other interesting dynamic, of course, is that Catherine's mother, Maria de Salinas, was um, a champion of Catholicism and um, Catherine of Aragon's lifelong companion. So... Catherine Willoughby was brought up uh, a staunch Catholic. So she had that as a background. Last month, I visited um, Grimsthorpe Castle and I'd always thought that the chapel was a, a fairly modest thing, being a Protestant chapel. But the chapel is a prominent room in the castle. As you go in the, into the Great Hall, you turn right and there is this magnificent high ceiling room. And it was just amazing to stand in there and think, this is where Hugh Latimer preached, risked his life, by the way, to preach to Catherine and her neighbours about the need for a simpler form of religion that ordinary people could understand. And he got burnt at the stake for that in Oxford with Cranmer. That was, you know, the greatest injustice. And I think... Um, if I had time, I'd write a whole book about Hugh Latimer because what a character, you know.
0: And yet, it's so hard to to get it, you know, that it happened. Then with the other, I'm, I I got into Tudor history, gosh, 25 years ago through singing the music of William Byrd and think, you know, in high school and learning that he was a recusant Catholic and what's a recusant Catholic and That's. you know. <laughs> getting that was kind of my my entree into this was the latin masses that were written during the elizabethan period that were sung in secret and that that really appealed to the rebellious teenager in me you know and um and there's it on both sides it it just this i wonder how much of that it it could that could be a whole discussion but how much of that was also linked to kind of the new scientific discoveries and the realization that people were making that um, that maybe the earth wasn't the center of the universe and religion wasn't all you know we're right before the enlightenment and it's almost like there has to be this last gasp of of religious fervor taking over on both sides and makes me think about that.
1: It's interesting because um, before I started researching Catherine I had this view of Protestant martyrs as rather dour people that were whitewashing over the beautiful paintings of saints and, and pulling down these magnificent effigies that had been there for centuries. And uh, my view completely changed as I, as I carried on, because all they wanted was for ordinary people to be able to go to church and pray in their own language, not in Latin, um, bearing in mind most of them couldn't read or write. So a, a simpler form of religion, which was relevant and meaningful to them, um, is you could see how they thought that was a cause worth championing. And then, of course, um, there were all sorts of people. But um, Stephen Gardner uh, really, Bishop Stephen Gardner, uh, really set himself against Catherine. And that's a great story in itself, isn't it? How both of them, for completely different reasons, had the attention of Henry VIII. And... um, Catherine had a mischievous streak and would deliberately goad Stephen Gardner and make him look silly. And of course, it was quite hard for him to defend all the pomp and um, extravagance, you know, the the Catholic bishops dressed in gold, um, cloth of gold and velvet and all that sort of thing. And um, what Catherine was saying is that you're only men, you're only ordinary men, you know? Yeah. he, he just he couldn't put up with that at all so there's the the, the famous story is that she named her spaniel gardener and used to call it to heal at, at court which um of course they used to fall about laughing at that but it was a dangerous game to play and she knew it she one thing she wasn't was naive because she really knew what she was doing and um these days, I think she'd be quite an astute politician using uh, political influence more overtly than, um, than a lot of people might expect her to.
0: So let's go back to the start of her story here, because we, we already have her now at, with Catherine Parr at court. Um, so let's go back to when she first met Charles Brandon. And yes. how, how did that how did
1: that all happen? She had led such a sheltered life because her mother closeted her away at Parham Old Hall. And really, um, although although Catherine, she was named after Catherine of Aragon and she would have met her and known, she would have been quite comfortable with the the royalty aspect of it because uh, her mother was had been involved with royalty all of her life. But... Um, when Catherine's father died, uh, not only did she become uh, Baroness Derisby, um, uh, she also became the wealthiest heiress in the country because she inherited 30 manors uh, from her father. And each manor w- consisted of lots of farms and tenants and houses and God knows what else. And um, Charles Brandon, as, as we know, would have had his eye on her right from the, the moment her father died. He would have rubbed his hands together and uh, yeah. he went to Henry and borrowed the money to buy her wardship ostensibly um, as a bride for his son, also named Henry um, after the king. And so yeah. that all seems fair enough, but he only waited three months after Mary died before he married Catherine. And it's that that raised the eyebrows at court, not the age difference, because um, it's so important not to apply modern standards to it all because, you know, Brandon was my age and then she was a 14 year old, not naive, but um, she'd led a very sheltered life. Can you imagine what a culture shock it was to go from basically being an only child at Parham Hall um, to being in this hectic household with Um, Brandon's other daughters and uh, everything that was going on at um, Westhorpe so she had a lot to get used to and a lot of adjustments to make and then straight away she's right into the the the, the Tudor court and and meeting the king and then um, of course um, getting a lot of attention from uh, everybody, because of course they were the premier duke and duchess. They were the Harry and Meghan of um, of the time. You see, right,
0: right. And what was their relationship like? Because in your book, you you show perhaps you know a companionship, but you you have her not particularly madly in love with him.
1: <laughs> I struggled with that uh consulted a few people, including my wife. How do you deal with the relationship between um, an older man and a 14-year-old girl uh, okay. without, without drifting into uh, murky waters? And, of course, um, she thought of him like a father figure. Don't forget, she'd lost her father, so she was in need of a father figure, and he fitted the bill perfectly. He was an old man, um, not by modern standards, but by Tudor standards, when I was at Grimsthorpe Castle, their portraits hang on the wall in the corridor, um, quite close to the room where Catherine spent her last days. And on the left hand side, you've got Charles Brandon, uh, really looking like the elderly Henry VIII, with a, a, yeah. a very corpulent, with a grey beard. You've probably seen the portrait. Yeah, and the then to, to the left of him is the the older... Catherine Willoughby but of course she's not that much older she's only in her 30s and uh, she looks a young and attractive woman and um, I, I believe she quite enjoyed being Duchess of Suffolk she, she liked that world she, she got on well with um, Charles's other daughters because they were the same age of course and um, it was A breath of fresh air after having been closeted away with her mother with only servants for company. Uh, Mm And Although she was 14, she grew up fast because she started um, attending Hugh Latimer's um, sermons at Hampton Court. You've been in the the chapel at Hampton Court with a fantastic scene. It was in that very chapel, you see. So I can really picture the scene where this... I won't say impressionable young girl, but she had a very inquiring mind and was very questioning about the status quo. So to to, to be legitimately exposed to somebody like Hugh Latimer, um, who Henry VIII was quite happy for for Hugh to be quite controversial because he enjoyed the way it um, upset the the Spanish ambassadors and people like that. Because Henry was quite mischievous as well, of course, in mm-hmm. lots of ways. And uh, but Catherine was probably taking notes and thinking, hang on a minute. Um, this is all starting to make sense to me, whereas uh, the Catholicism, her mother, which was, of course, the it, the, the harsh Catholic, Spanish Catholic. That's uh, the Spanish right.
0: Inquisition kind of Catholic.
1: Right. Yes, that's exactly right. I I, mean, I don't want to upset, upset any Catholics because um, I'm trying to say if you think of it as a continuum, Um, This was over right over to one side, the Spanish Inquisition side of Catholicism. And um, I think Catherine might have started a bit more over to the other side and then really signed up to the idea of the need for reform. And it wasn't called Protestantism in those days, by the way. Of course, it was just the reformed religion. And and they started calling it the, the true faith. Which is a bit provocative for people like Stephen Gardner, wasn't it? (laughs) And of course, you have people like Archbishop Cranmer, um, hugely influential characters, uh, that said, Yeah, we agree, we agree that it's, you know, we've got the Church of England, it's time to, to make our mark and think about the everyday person turning up at church who sits there blankly and incomprehendingly listening to the the music, but not understanding the words. I tried not to make my book um, too religious, mind you, because that that could have been a, a bit too much the other way. Because religion was only one part of uh, the rather complex jigsaw of Catherine's life, and um, she, you know, she was wanting really, I suppose, the whole time uh, some proper love and affection because. Her mother was um, old school um love and affection, I suppose. I tried to, I tried to hint at that. Um uh, her father was was gone. Um Charles Brandon was a bit of a um how can I put it? I, I don't think he might have treated Catherine as much as much of a wife in terms of his love and affection, because um at the end of the day he married her for her fortune. And he didn't waste any time in taking control of her thirty manors in Lincolnshire and becoming really the the elder statesman of the north, so he he became the the um, greatest landowner in Lincolnshire and promptly took the money from the dissolution of the monasteries and rebuilt Grimsthorpe. so the Tudor rooms at Grimsthorpe, um a lot of those have actually got stoned from the nearby um, Catholic monasteries and uh, Charles Brandon is the person responsible for it.
0: So, um, her life during the after Anne Boleyn and af, after she's married and she has children with Charles Brandon, she has her sons, and what's life like for her then with Anna Cleves and the oh, kind of that, later part?
1: Yeah, that was, I, I think um, she didn't know it at the time but it was the cleverest move that Catherine made because um, what happened was that Henry needed somebody uh, to go and welcome Anne of Cleves. And so he, he said to Charles Brandon, you, you can represent me there, go to um, Deal Castle in Kent and um, welcome this, this uh, queen. And of course, Catherine accompanied him, not realising that it would change her life. Because um, later on, uh, that connection and Cleves um, became a lifesaver for her. But at the time, uh, she could really sympath- she could be a huge help to Anna of Cleves, or Anna of Cleves, as I now call her, because that was her proper name. And um, Catherine knew all about what it was like to be a stranger at the Tudor court and how best to deal with Henry VIII. She would have been quite intrigued by Anna because. Um, Anna could hardly speak English. She, she spoke German and um, Catherine could speak French and Latin, but not German. So it must have been quite interesting to see them develop a friendship.
0: And so then her husband dies and, uh, well, there's the whole, the relation, the everything happening with Catherine Howard. And then he, he was in Scotland and then he was in France and then she gets, these in your book she has these writers coming in the middle of the night saying you have to come to be with your husband because he's very sick um so what did she do then after he
1: died she went into mourning and put all of her energies into um acting as a um, advocate for the reformed religion and the kind of thing she was doing uh she had all of the money then and so she was very busy trying to get um, an English language copy of the Bible into every church in Lincolnshire, and from there, um, every church in the country. That's that's a major, major undertaking, and guaranteed to upset a certain sort of part of the of the society, but also to be acknowledged as a, a valued thing by the rest. And so. Um, that, that took up a lot of her time, and I, I think it was about uh, three years before she, she finally actually um, came public with her love affair with Richard Bertie, who was her master of the horse. And, and quite a interesting character in his own right, because his role in helping them in exile, he was very brave. He could have uh, taken no risk at all. But he actually went to the tower. He went to Westminster to see if he could negotiate some kind of deal for the family and um, stood the risk of of being incarcerated in the tower for life or executed or burnt at the stake or whatever. And he took that risk. And then he went on his own um, to prepare the way for them, uh, which he needn't have done. And um, at first I couldn't understand why he'd done it. And of course, uh, it w- it made sense. He could travel fast and light and incognito, and and do some negotiating and fix up somewhere for them to live, and then when the family followed, it would be much much safer for them uh, than just chancing it on their own. They had to move quite slowly. They had Susan was a a baby, uh, their daughter Susan, and um, so you know that that's part of of. Uh, Gives an insight into his character, and their son Peregrine is also an intriguing character. At Grimsthorpe there's um, a lot of a lot about Peregrine around. So um, it, they did marry for love; they were very much in love. And uh, one of the things I did was I visited their tomb at the Willoughby Chapel in Spilsby in Lincolnshire, and uh, they're there side-by-side side, Richard and Catherine, effigies of them, and you get a real sense that that's what they would have wished.
0: I want to go back to her her sons with Charles Brandon, because she had quite a tragedy happen with them.
1: Yes, I um, mean, I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers for people that haven't read the Oh, book. OK. Right. But, no, it's well known that the, the, the sweating sickness, it must have been terrifying, because the sweating sickness used to sweep through the country much the same as um, I don't know what would it be uh, like the flu the, or something the flu does now uh, except that it would it could take half the population almost within 24 hours if you got it there was no cure and you'd shiver and sweat and die you know and yeah. randomly people used to survive it and um, also like Anne Boleyn survived it Yes. That's right. That's a good example. And perfectly fit and well, healthy people like um, Catherine's sons. They were at university. And to be safe, uh, she moved them right away to an isolated um, bishop's palace at Buckton, which, by the way, is uh, by the the connection is that that's, of course, where Catherine of Aragon spent her last days. That's how Catherine knew about Mm -hmm. it so she thought well i can relax a bit now because the obviously um somewhere like cambridge the sweating sickness with all the close together houses narrow streets and everything like that they didn't know how it was spread by the way they still don't really understand it so can you imagine uh what it must have been like to hear that one of her sons had the sweating sickness because it was like the toss of a coin there was a a 50-50 chance of, of life or death yeah.
0: um
1: and so to, for them to both die uh, within hours of each other must have been the end of the world for her, really because I
0: can I can't imagine how you'd go on from that I don't oh. I just, you know.
1: well I, I did I did wonder whether to just have a whole blank chapter where nothing happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> because she she was just completely, utterly devastated, and of course this is, this is where Richard Bertie, um, who was a, he wasn't really her servant because, uh, master of the horse, isn't really the same as a servant. You know, it's a member of the household. So Charles Brandon was Henry VIII's master of the horse, for example. That didn't make Charles Brandon Henry's servant. It made him a valued sort of. Um, right-hand man kind of thing
0: and Robert um, Dudley
1: with Elizabeth the 1st yes master. Oh that's another good one. And um so it's a very a very good role to have but what I found out was that Charles Brandon had started a a breeding stud at Grimsthorpe and and uh, this is where Richard Bertie had been recruited as an expert horseman and he did a very good job of developing that breeding stud into something which was renowned uh, at least throughout Lincolnshire, but you have to remember how important horses were at the time. Uh, they were the everyday transport, but they were also the the uh, luxury transport of the time. So to be um, managing the the very best, selecting the very best horses and breeding them, and then being able to sell them on, uh, was a very astute way of running a business. And that was his that was his role so um, he would have been quite a comfort I think to Catherine when she was at possibly her lowest ebb and um, what she didn't do uh, was co-public with that straight away like Charles Brandon did um, she waited three years rather than three months and I think that's that's to her credit because I think a year would have been enough but I think it also gives an insight into how utterly devastated uh, she must have been by the experience.
0: I don't know how, how anybody recovers from that and then goes on and and lives, but um, you do what you do. I think her
1: faith helped her through it. So, yeah. you know, that if, if you've got a very, a very um, devout faith, then that's going to be something that you can use to help survive. Um, as long as you don't start questioning, um, you know, how how God could do that to you sort of thing. And then, of course, there's a a kind of parallel thing here, which is um, Catherine Parr. You mentioned Catherine Parr. As far as I can tell, that was one of the great friendships because um, Catherine Willoughby actually financed Catherine Parr's the publication of Lamentation. And uh, if you look at the title page of Lamentation of a Sinner, then not only is um, Catherine Willoughby mentioned on the, on the um, acknowledgements, but also uh, a chap called William Cecil, uh, who you'll know <laughs> of. <laughs> He's cropping up in my new book now, uh, William Cecil, as a 50-year-old man. But he was a handsome young guy at the time. And luckily for Catherine Willoughby, he was happily married, but... It be it would have been that would have been a good match, I think, William Cecil and Catherine Willoughby, because uh, they shared a lot of interests, but they also had a lot of similar qualities, and of course they both had privileged access, uh, firstly to Henry VIII, then to Edward, and then, ironically, I say ironically, but um, Catherine knew not only did she know all of Henry VIII's six wives, she knew all of his children. And she'd actually um, played cards with Mary Tudor and knew her well. There's all these fascinating, you know, at at school, you get given a very black and white picture of it all. It's all very straightforward. Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, Murdered All, you know, and it's much more complicated than that. uh, Well, I wanted
0: to ask you, um, and I without giving away too many spoilers, when Catherine Parr died, Catherine Willoughby was involved with, um, raised, well, being named
1: the, she wasn't too pleased about that because, right. uh, the, the last thing, the last thing she needed at the time was a baby to look after and, um, you know, uh, especially, um, a Seymour, which, which you could say was a Seymour and, um, she didn't have any choice basically so uh, they all they all turned up at Grimsthorpe um, not just a baby but a complete entourage of, of people because uh, the, the child came with its its wet nurses and governesses and servants and uh, the whole lot mm-hmm. and um, you know it was just a fate complete basically there was no, there was no um, doing anything about it and Just to make matters worse, Catherine was a bit miffed that uh, the money for the salaries of all of these people and I mean, I shouldn't think the the running costs of a a baby are huge, but it was the size of the entourage which raised an eyebrow. And Catherine was expected to pay them all and had to campaign quite doggedly to to get the crown to um, fulfil its obligations. So, uh,
0: then I want to also just kind of jump forward. I want to talk about one more phase of her life and then just ask you briefly about how you researched and what it was like writing from a woman's perspective <laughs> and all of that. Um, but I, I do want to talk about her period in exile because that was quite yeah. important for her. So what, just well, briefly, what can you tell me about? Oh, well, she,
1: in the end, the only, all she had was the clothes on her back and what, she, what such gemstones and jewellery that she could basically sew into the hems of her skirts. That's how bad it was. So they didn't even end up carrying luggage at one point because they were on the run, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, They had little Susan, uh, a bawling baby. uh, And in fact, it was hugely dangerous for Susan because um, they had to worry about what they were going to do for food. They were having to walk Uh, The weather conditions were atrocious, so there was snow and ice to cope with. And they would knock on somebody's door, not knowing if they were going to be Protestant or Catholic sympathisers. And the whole time, which I think is a bit rotten, I think if I was mayor, I would have said, uh, best of luck to you. You know, you've um, decided to go to exile, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. She didn't. Um, whether it was Mary Tudor herself or whether it was her advisers, but people were sent uh, to search for Catherine Willoughby to try and arrest her and bring her back to be tried um, as a heretic. Which that means that they could never completely relax because there could be a knock at the door. Um, it does. It does remind me of um, I shan't say Nazi Germany, but you know the sort of thing where you never know. Mm-hmm. It was a bit, there's another there's another parallel when Jasper Tudor was in hiding in Temby, which is close to where I live. Temby was a Yorkist town, and so he never knew which of his good friends uh, would turn him in because the their the Yorkist sympathies were greater than their friendship, you know. Right. And it was a bit like that with Catherine Willoughby. And um, there's all sorts of st- I mean I mentioned about. The connection with Anna of Cleves meant that they could take sanctuary in Cleves. But at one time, um, Henry VIII had a brilliant idea of marrying Charles Brandon's widow after the King of Poland and the King of Poland was up for that. He thought it was um, a a good alliance between England and Poland, Uh, but it never happened because of course Catherine. (laughs) Catherine wasn't like Mary Tudor, that she just had to do whatever Henry VIII said. Uh, she, she was her own woman, and I think a very modern woman, in considering that it was in Tudor times. But when she was in exile, the king of Poland was very happy to help them then.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that, that, that little episode in her earlier life turned out to be perhaps even a lifesaver in her later life, because... With uh, a good conduct, a safe conduct pass from the King of Poland, uh, then they were almost treated like royalty. And, um, you know, uh, Richard Bertie got given a top job as uh, a senior administrator in the region, uh, which is extremely well paid and came with a nice house and everything. And that would have been the happily ever after. And then, of course, Mary Tudor died suddenly. Mm Yeah. And and uh, the message comes through. They've only just settled down to their whole new life, you know, learning um, whatever uh, the language of the district and everything. And then they hear Mary Tudor's died, so um, it's safe to go back. That must have been, you know, I think Catherine Willoughby's life was a series of of shocks and surprises, really, because. Um, when, when she got that news, it, it, they couldn't really stay where they were. They had to go back because she wanted to make sure then that um, Elizabeth I uh, was not wavering too much in terms of the new religion and the reforms and didn't just um, take the easy route and go back to Catholicism. And of course, as we know, that was a very complex um, Elizabeth's religion, in the end, was whatever suited her at the time. I think. Yeah. So, so after all that, Catherine went back to Grimsthorpe. And
0: she would have wanted to make sure her lands were safe and everything. I guess. Yes.
1: That. Yeah. Well, well, it was all kept. It was all kept well for her. So when she went back, um, she had a a beautiful. Um, I mean, Grimsby is a, a lovely part of the country. It, it's a magnificent place. With wonderful gardens and it's since been it's a shame in a way because the the landscape has been altered dramatically by a chap called Capability Brown who put a great big lake That's in
0: it.
1: Yeah. But but there's still you can still we actually walked through the Tudor Gardens, uh, which Catherine Willoughby would have known and loved. And um, you really do get a sense uh, that the, the years just vanish, and you can get a sense that she could just be round the corner, perhaps reading a prayer book or something. You know, looking at the view, and uh, it's on a it's on a bit of one of the few raised bits of ground in Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire is very flat and reclaimed from the sea, a lot of it, but um, Grimstop is on a rise, so you've got these magnificent views into the far distance, which are quite inspiring and um, it was easy to see why Catherine would choose to return to what was actually her father's house because her father was given Grimsthorpe by Henry VIII as a wedding present when he married Maria de Salinas and so her father and mother's spirit um, imbued the place and of course um, Catherine could use it then as a base to carry on her work to um, promote Protestantism
0: it's such a, a wonderful story her life like you say she is quite modern in so many ways. What was it like for you writing from her perspective and you know what kind of what did you do to kind of get in character to write her story?
1: <laughs> yeah, people ask me that because they say how can you possibly I tell you what I'll confess I always struggle with childbirth scenes because although I've had two children um was present um it, I've got a very different perspective on it. So my wife reads those bits and helps to tone them down or to make them a bit more authentic. But of course, this is the third time that I've written a a whole book from the point of view of a woman, because I started with a fascinating um, woman called Eleanor Cobham. I don't know if you know about her. She She was tried for witchcraft and um, imprisoned for life so I had I had to try and get myself into her head so I went to Beaumaris Castle and sat in the cell that she was actually in and um, it's not so difficult as, as you might think at the end of the day because uh, there's, there's quite a lot of information around about the lives of Tudor women, some excellent books and um, I then obviously wrote about uh, Mary Tudor, Queen of France and uh, so you know that gave me a bit of practice and I think I'd like to think that by the time I got to writing Catherine's story I was much better at seeing the world through her eyes than if I'd not had the the practice of writing the previous two uh, books about women. I'm now writing about um, a rather fascinating chap called Francis Drake and and, uh, I'm finding out that virtually everything I thought I knew about Francis Drake was wrong, which is which I shouldn't be surprised about, but he's a really intriguing character. But um, I can't wait to get on to uh, writing about Francis's wife, Mary um, Newman. Very little is known about Mary, but I'm glad I've got her in this story because he spends a lot of time away at sea, but I can also try and look at how Mary, Newman views him. So I've got into this sort of vibe now, and I can yeah, yeah. Uh, quite enjoy writing that.
0: So um, we've talked for a long time here, and I thank you for <laughs> your your generosity and sharing your knowledge and in being willing to do this, especially after all our tech issues.
1: Um, so to say about Catherine Willoughby, I do recommend to anybody that's in the UK to to visit. The Willoughby Chapel in Spilsby because it's such, you feel such an instant connection with um, Richard Bertie and Catherine Willoughby. You know, it, it, you can you can almost sense their presence. It's a bit like when you go to Westminster Abbey and see um, uh, Henry and um, Elizabeth of York side by side, or mm-hmm. Margaret Beaufort. Uh, you you feel a connection with them, which. You really can't get from watching uh, something on the television or reading it in a book. They're there.
0: So your book is on Amazon and um, people can buy it there.
1: Yeah, I'm pleased to say that the actress Ruth Redmond, she's a a well-known UK actress that did the audio book for Mary Tudor. Um, She did a wonderful job. I don't know if you've heard her. I I did, yeah. But she's agreed to narrate um, Catherine. She's obviously a very busy uh, lady because um, it's not going to be available until the new year. But because she's got the um, previous experience of, of um, narrating uh, Brandon's wife Mary Tudor, uh, she's got a lot of a lot more depth and insight into into Catherine's story because she she understands about. Yeah. Um, the life at West Thorpe and everything. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. that will be out in the spring, probably.
0: Thank you so much, Tony Riches, for being here and for sharing and for continuing to tell these stories. You tell really wonderful stories and it's a, a privilege to speak with you and it's a privilege to read your books And um, and I just really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me and I really appreciate that. And I look forward to speaking to you again, perhaps one day about Francis Drake. Blow northern wind, send for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind. Blow blow blow. That soul is Sam leaves on sea.
0: Planning for your next trip?